Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. It's late summer, and an unexplained influenza virus is killing international travelers. Researchers quickly identify the virus as a genetically engineered flu strain. Intelligence agencies find irrefutable evidence that the virus was created in a secret bioweapons laboratory in a middle-income country. It was accidentally released, but by the end, 50 million people are killed by this pathogen. This was the scenario presented to a group of experts at the Munich Security Conference in February who participated in what is known as a tabletop exercise. Their goal was to understand how key international players might respond to a situation like this and identify ways that such a scenario might be prevented from unfolding in the first place. My guest today, Jamie Yassif, helped design and implement this tabletop exercise. She is a senior fellow at NTI for Global Biological Policy and Programs, and in our conversation, we discuss what this fictional scenario reveals about very real gaps in international policies to prevent a catastrophic biological weapons event. I think you'll appreciate this episode. You know, one of the goals I have with this podcast is to shine a spotlight on undercovered global stories and also undercovered global policy ideas. And certainly some of the policy ideas presented throughout this conversation are ones that deserve urgent attention and all the more so in light of the current COVID pandemic that we are all experiencing you know, the scenario that uh, was created for this tabletop exercise was created before the pandemic. And as Jamie Yosef explains, some of the lessons uh, from the scenario can certainly be applied to our world today. Also, I'm realizing now that I'm publishing this episode nearly exactly one year after I published my episode asking the question of whether or not we are prepared for the next big global epidemic, uh, which unfortunately was uh, somewhat uh, prophetic in retrospect. But hopefully, this episode certainly won't be. Anyway, I think you'll enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Jamie Yassif of NTI. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In February of this year, we hosted a tabletop exercise on high-consequence biological threats 
um, which took place during the Munich Security Conference. And the Munich Security Conference is a really important global meeting that happens every year. It convenes uh, national leaders from around the world uh, to focus on uh, important international security issues of the day and talk about challenges and talk about solutions. And so uh, we were really delighted to have the opportunity to, to bring our work that's focused on reducing biological threats to this venue because we really wanted to engage that community on these really important issues. And I saw that two of the participants, uh, at least two of the participants in your tabletop exercise were previous episodes, previous guests on this podcast. Senator Sam Nunn has been on the show and uh, Richard Hatchett, the CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative. So you had a number of pretty high profile and uh, people and, and other experts participate in this, correct? Absolutely. We feel really grateful to have such amazing thought leaders and leaders in the uh, international community on the issue of biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. You know, uh, the exercise generally uh, involved an international group of senior leaders with many years of experience and deep expertise across public health, international security, scientific research, and biosecurity. So we're just deeply grateful for their time and their engagement uh, and, uh, and their help um, with our work to to work to reduce global biological risks. So walk me through the scenario, and and you know I think it's worth emphasizing as you do in the report that this scenario was conceived before the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic. Although the uh, tabletop exercise played out, as you said in February twenty nineteen, just as sort of the seriousness of this uh, disease was was sort of being felt and being understood around the world. Uh, but can you just sort of walk us through what, what is the scenario that you presented to your participants? Yes, our event uh, had been planned prior to the emergence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus late last year. Uh, but in our, uh, we saw striking similarities in how the fictional disease uh, scenario um, that we developed uh, swept the globe and foreshadowed the widespread impact and paralyzing knock-on effects that the world is now experiencing as a result of the COVID pandemic. So that was kind of a, a, a surprise for, for us. But I'm happy to walk through this scenario. So yeah, yeah. Explain what happened. How did 50 million people end up dying? Yeah. It's uh, so the the events in our scenario uh, begin in the late late in the summer of 2020 as an unexplained and deadly influenza virus kills a number of international travels travelers from the fictional country of Apulia. So we made up uh, fake country names for this exercise for extra fun. Um, and so our research, you know, re as part of the scenario, research teams rapidly sequence the responsible virus strain and they identify it as an engineered version of influenza. And these are really credible teams. They're affiliated with WHO International Lab Network. And, um, and it's just worth worth pausing there in terms of creating a parallel to COVID. The COVID sequence was also very rapidly sequenced uh, shortly after its discovery. That's correct. And it's really, you know, this is just generally important. You want when you initially detect a new pathogen that has uh, global consequences, potentially, you really want to understand it as quickly as possible, understand what it is, understand how risky uh, it might be, uh, where it might have come from, and what kind of risks it poses to national and global populations. So that makes, you know, that that makes a lot of sense. That's what you would expect in that kind of but, situation. But unlike COVID, the sequencing uh, that unfolded in your scenario revealed that it was some sort of genetically engineered uh, flu-like strain. 
Exactly. So, so that's right. That was the conclusion that the laboratories uh, came to in this fictional scenario. And that started to raise some eyebrows. And then basically, as the scenario unfolds, uh, characters in the scenario start to grapple with what does this mean? Why did this happen? Who could have done such a thing? What would be their motivations? And so um, as the scenario progresses, researchers using a variety of scientific means identify a state-run laboratory in Aplia as the likely source of the initial outbreak. Um, the, the, the government of Aplia, the fictional country, claims that this laboratory is part of a purely defensive biopreparedness program. So they're saying... Yes, you know, this you're traced this back to our laboratory, but this laboratory is conducting legitimate work. There's nothing to see here. Um, but the exercise uh, scenario concludes with additional intelligence uh, sources that provide irrefutable evidence that the state run lab uh, in Aplia is, in fact, a secret bioweapons facility and that the spread of the deadly virus resulted from a lab accident with catastrophic consequences. And by the end of the exercise, the global case count is more than 2 billion, with a B, billion. Um, that's a huge fraction of the global human population on Earth. And then more than 50 million lives have been lost as a result of the virus's spread. So that's the scenario. And um, Aplia is what kind of, of country? Do, do you assign a region to it? So we're very deliberately being agnostic about where it is in the world um, because we want to. We don't want this to be political. We want to focus on issues. But it's a middle-income country um, with a rapidly growing biotechnology industry, um, and it is uh, struggling with its trans- transition to democracy. So those are the characteristics of Aplia. And so it is discovered with irrefutable evidence that this virus uh, that's rapidly spreading across the globe is a genetically modified flu strain, deadly flu strain that came from this bioweapons facility. So what's what's like the international response? I think the international community is really struggling. They have a a variety of conflicting views about what to do. So um, some of Aplia's allies... Uh, defend them and say they're, that you know the, the so-called irrefutable evidence is is questionable. We don't really believe the story. Um, we should hear a plea out. We should have a st- higher standard before we make such uh, claims. And others are outraged and they see the rising death toll and and uh, increasing case counts in their countries and globally, and they want to see accountability. For a plea, so so it really divides the international community, and this is what you you know we believe we we could reasonably expect in this kind of scenario that there wouldn't necessarily be international consensus um, on even just the underlying truth of what has happened, and and the, and as a result, what we should do about it, and that's a real challenge. So, I mean, in the end, how does is this situation just sort of resolved when and if they does develop a a vaccine to this virus? So we don't uh, tie up the exercise in a, in a tidy bow. So there's no uh, vaccine at the end of the rainbow, even though, you know, one would hope that that would eventually happen. Um, It's mostly the purpose of the exercise is to draw the attention of our participants and the broader international community to some of the challenges uh, that these kind of scenarios would raise for us. And, and highlight the importance of taking urgent action now to, to strengthen global capabilities to prevent and effectively respond to these kinds of events so that we are prepared for them and we manage these challenges. 
So to that end, what did this exercise reveal about the deficiencies of the Biological Weapons Convention, which I think is like, what, like 40-something years old at this point? Uh, sure. Happy to talk about that. I might sort of step out, step back for a second and, and sort of share the broad takeaways from the exercise. And then hap- and then I'm happy to drill down on the implications specifically for the BWC, if that's okay with you. Go, go for it. So, you know, there are basically three key takeaways from the exercise. Um, and that that's a reflection of the agreement that was reached uh, among participants, uh, about three major shortfalls within the international system. So one of them is just that, you know, the, the recognition that uh, bioscience and biotechnology uh, is advancing rapidly, it's spreading globally, and it's accessible to more and more people, which is fantastic and has tremendous potential. But those developments have not been matched uh, with the development of norms and, and governance mechanisms and best practices uh, to manage uh, potential associated risks of deliberate misuse or accidental release. So that's the first finding. We just don't have sufficient institutional capability and process to deal with that. The second finding is that, uh, and this has some connections to the Biological Weapons Convention, I'm happy to get into that in greater detail. Um, The international community lacks robust transparency measures to clarify the intentions and capabilities of bioscience research and development that is being conducted in countries around the world. And um, and that's dangerous because it can lead to potentially dangerous misperceptions and suspicions about what countries are up to uh, with bioscience within their borders um, and whether or not they're in compliance with the Biological Weapons Convention, which, which prohibits uh, development and use of, of, these, of, of biological weapons. Uh, oh, I see. So, so presumably, I, I don't know like a lot about the Biological Weapons Convention, but presumably, mm-hmm. if it's like other weapons conventions that you have, you know, participating signatory countries have this sort of you know, voluntary uh, review in which they disclose, say, like the locations and the the uses of their um, facilities that might potentially be like dual use facilities. I, I presume there's something like that in the Biological Weapons Convention, where there's some sort of like reporting mechanism. So that's basically true. So um, the Biological Weapons Convention, uh, unlike the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and the Chemical Weapons Convention, does not have a verification provision, which, which um, in other treaties is binding. So, so uh, mm. states' parties to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty and the Chemical Weapons Convention are, once they commit, make such commitments, are legally bound to disclose information and there's, so whole apparat- <laughs> so there's, and there's an apparatus. I mean, there's also voluntary elements, but there, yeah, there okay. are binding elements and there's an apparatus to support that. The BWC is unusual or un- different from those other two in the sense that it doesn't have as a very small staff that supports it, very small annual budget, and there are no binding um, ver- there's no vi- binding verification protocol. What it does have instead is, is a, a variety of measures. So there are the confidence building measures, um, which were established roughly 30 years ago. Um, and that basically requires, well, requires country states parties are strongly encouraged to, to report, um, to sort of engage in the kind of transparency that you were just talking about a moment ago, share information about the bioscience and re- research and development that's going on within their borders. Um, share any information about dual use research and so forth. Um, there also are some, uh, you know, unfortunately, this, these CBMs um, in the last three years, I think less than half of states parties have actually turned submitted those. So there's a challenge there. And another what's a ha- CBM? Is a CBM what they call like the the disclosure mechanism? 
That's correct. Uh, okay. That's the confidence building measures. Sometimes ah, okay, we okay. them as CBMs for short. Thanks for the clarification. So, but yeah, so, you know, less than half of the state's parties are currently submitting these on an annual basis and they haven't been updated for almost 30 years. So um, there's potential for improvement there. Um, there's also some, uh, something called uh, voluntary peer review. And that's something that's an initiative that a number of states parties to the to the BWC have uh, taken upon themselves to organize and they want to build on and reinforce transparency measures. So they conduct voluntary site visits to each other's facilities uh, in an effort to bolster international transparency as it relates to the convention. But in reading your report, like your key recommendations aren't just to bolster the That's biological correct. weapons convention. They're there to sort of create like new global governance mechanisms Absolutely. for this kind of new reality. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so I already spoke to two of the, the shortfalls. There's a sort of shortfall for governing uh, uh, rapid advances in science and technology. There's a shortfall in transparency measures. So notwithstanding all the things I just spoke about, we feel like there's a lot of room for improvement and there's a, there is a need, an urgent need to bolster transparency. And then third, we, we believe that there also has to be stronger international capacity to rapidly investigate the source of biological events when we don't know their origin. And we have to be able to do that during a crisis. And we believe that we need to do a lot of institutional institu- institution building and capacity building because those are three major gaps. Uh, I'm happy to get more into details about uh, any and all of them if you'd like. Just let me know where you'd like to do Yeah, them. I mean, I mean, it's it's on this last recommendation that you just spoke that I, I got a little hung up on on your sure. report. So, you know, as you say, you you recommend the creation of some sort of entity, um, mm-hmm. perhaps affiliated with the UN, um, mm-hmm. that you know is able to rapidly invest. Investigate um, mm-hmm. an incident of suspicious derivation having mm-hmm. to do with um, some sort of biological weapons incident, and and again, sort of coming back to like the the current uh, SARS or pardon me, sir, the current COVID example. You know, initially early on, you had these. You know, the the World Health Organization was just kind of relying on China to provide it with information, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of how the WHO is set up. Um, but you're you're not sort of seeking to work through the WHO. You're seeking to sort of create a, a new mechanism. Mechanism. Can you just sort of talk me through what sure. in an ideal type this mechanism might look like and how it might function? Absolutely. And before I get into that, I just want to sort of explain the rationale and why we see a gap. So, so this, you know, this like this mechanism or this function is kind is operating at the seams between the the, the mission and scope of what WHO does very well and what the the United Nations the the United Nations Secretary General's office does. So the WHO is great at conducting public health investigations um, to figure out what's going on when we see a naturally emerging pandemic, right? That's, 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 they're excellent at that. Um, You know, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the UN Secretary General's mechanism. And that mechanism was established to give the the Secretary General the authority to deploy an investigation, um, an evidence-based investigation involving a multilateral team, a uh, multinational team to um, uh, in response to specific, specifically to allegations that a state has uh, uh, used a biological weapon. But there is um, those are so those mechanisms exist, but there is um, nothing at the present moment that that works in between those two ends of the spectrum. So if we're not sure if it was naturally emerging or deliberately caused or an accidental release, there's not there's no strong strong tool to do that. 
Um, and so that's really the gap that we have identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, to answer I, your question, yeah, yeah, please. Well, I mean, just to stop you there, if you're a PLEA, why would yeah. you consent to an international investigation on your territory? Like, like, and and you would probably have to wait until the Security Council authorizes um, sort of like the violation of your sovereignty for the investigation to happen. Now, I'm thinking again of of a comparison to the joint investigative me- uh, mechanism that was created in response to chemical weapons attacks in Syria, mm-hmm. where you had yeah. yeah, where where you had. Um, you know, the Security Council initially created this. Uh, Russia put up some opposition to it, but they eventually let it happen, though, with some constrictions. Then when it became clear that the joint investigative mechanism was going to identify that pro-regime elements and the regime itself was responsible for the use of chemical weapons, Russia just put a kibosh on the report and killed the joint investigative mechanism. Um, and, and so it's that when I said I sort of got hung up on this recommendation, it's it's at that point that mm-hmm. in, in this sort of fictional scenario where I see sort of an investigative mechanism kind of falling apart, absent unity at the Security Council. But that unity, at least in today's geopolitics, doesn't seem to exist. Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a number of interesting points. So first of all, I would note that um, I wouldn't necessarily assume that the Security Council would that you would need consensus within the Security Council. Um, that we did we did highlight within our exercise that the Security Council politics would make a coherent international response to this kind of event extraordinarily challenging, which is why we're thinking really hard about creative solutions that are internationally viable. Um, you know the. The, the the fact that the country in question, in this case of PLEA, um, would would be uh, would have a incent- strong incentive to resist an investigation, in our view, um, highlights one of the shortfalls of of pu- taking a purely WHO based approach. I don't think WHO wants to be in a position where they're battling to gain access. That's not really their business, and they don't really want to be in that position. Um, one of the benefits of the UN Secretary General Secretary General's mechanism is that the Secretary General has the authority to launch an investigation and does not need to go through the Security Council. That's why that authority is so powerful and why that mechanism is so important. Um, so, um, you know, we did engage in some, and in fact, during the scenario, uh, I believe that part of the scenario involved the fact that a PLEA did turn WHO investigators away or wasn't particularly compliant and was difficult to deal with. Um, uh, you know, you, I think some creative thinking will be necessary to sort of compel the country in question to comply. You know, they may have some interest in doing so. If you think about it, if you're a, if if you're the national leader of a country, of a given country and you're being accused by the international community of engaging in wrongdoing or you're suspicious, you know, you're going to want to demonstrate that you're a good actor and you have nothing to hide. So that will create some counter pressure to those kinds of um, incentives. And there, you know, there are other um, there are other tools, but that is challenging. I, I think, you know, for the joint assessment mechanism, what we're trying to think through at this point, I mean, at this point, we've identified a gap in the system, and we know that it's really important to fill that gap. And I think COVID has really highlighted why that's important. Um, but uh, you know, I think there are two things that really need to be thought through, uh, and we're actively working on this in consultation uh, with uh, colleagues internationally. Uh, one is just how do you launch this mechanism? Who has the authority to do so? Um, I think you know, should it 
Should it be tied to the WHO? Should it be tied to the UN Secretary General? Should it be a combination of um, of those uh, entities that should be a different entity? That's an open question. You know, you want to set the bar high enough so that you don't have frivolous investigations, but you don't want to set it so high that the mechanism can't be used. And so I think that's really where the devil is in the details. And I, I think that question is also very, you know, is very salient to the challenge that you rightly point out. Um, but I, I do agree that if, if it required going to the Security Council, um, that would be unlikely to succeed. The other, um, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say on, on the response mechanism um, is, is, is one thing, but it's sort of preventing uh, countries from acquiring the technology or perhaps even the incentive to want to acquire the technology to create a you know, genetically modified flu strain is, is, is another question. Uh, like, how do you sort of prevent an APLEA from wanting to create a bioweapons program in the first place? So, I mean, really what it comes down to is influencing a country's capabilities and intentions. I mean, that's the simplest answer. And I think, you know, the more resources a company, country has at its disposal, the less likely you are to succeed at influencing its capabilities. It's very hard to constrain capabilities, but you can influence intentions. And I think that there are basically two pieces of that. One is um, you want to avoid uh, unnecessary risk perception. So you want to, you know, that's why enhanced, that's why transparency is so important. You don't want countries around the world believing that their neighbor, you know, incorrectly believing or being unsure about whether or not their neighbors are violating the terms of the biological weapons convention and therefore feeling that they need to, you know, engage in some exploratory research of their own to see if they might need to defend themselves, right? We just don't want an environment of mutual misperception and suspicion, which can lead to arms racing. That's a really undesirable world. Um, and that's why transparency is critically important to, to, to build trust, um, enhance confidence, increase clarity about the capabilities and tensions of other countries. The second aspect of prevention is basically deterrence. So, you know, you want to influence the cost benefit calculation of the country in question, you know, make them think, well, if my country were to develop such a weapon and or possibly use it, what are the odds that we are going to face negative consequences that are unacceptable to us? And to the extent that there are strong international capabilities to uh, correctly attribute uh, the source of a bio uh, event, either an accidental release or a deliberate attack, um, and to hold that country accountable in a way that uh, is, you know, using an internationally viable mechanism. The stronger those systems systems are, uh, you know, we believe the greater deterrent capability that has, because a country will say, well, you know, we're not necessarily going to get away with this. We might get caught. We might be held accountable. Perhaps this is. Um, not a desirable path, and we should choose other means of uh, uh, bolstering our national defense. Do you have a sense of like how many countries out there fit Aplia's profile in terms of having the capacity and sort of the weak, you know, the the sort of weak uh, or, or quasi authoritarian governance structures? Or let me let me put it this way: Do like how many countries out there fit? Um, Aplia's profile uh, and might be a potential source for the scenario that you describe unfolding? 
Yeah. So, you know, that's a really interesting question. I think a lot of people would like the answer to it. That's not something that, you know, I have personally studied closely. So it's a bit outside my area of expertise. But what I can tell you is that, you know, um, because of the uh, rapid advances in bioscience and the fact that, it, you know, this technology is spreading globally and the barriers to entry are falling over time, um, the capability, you know, it's the capability is within reach of more and more countries. And really the question is what country feel, what, which countries um, feel that they need these kinds of capabilities to defend themselves? You know, uh, which countries feel like for, for any variety of ge- geopolitical reasons or risk perceptions or their, you know, the perception of what their neighbors are doing or their uh, adversaries are doing feel that they need to defend themselves and, and would, you know, for, through a variety of uh, processes come to the conclusion that this is a good tool. So we really want to um, address that, the risk perception, um, while also, you know, trying to constrain capabilities um, as well. So, so finally, you know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, that sort of the accessibility of of this technology is increasing and, mm-hmm. and seems to only increase over time. So, does yeah. that suggest that um, this is something that even if you don't have the, sort of the capacity of a state that you could create, could like a doomsday group or a terrorist organization create, um, you know, create a genetically modified H2N2 uh, virus that you know kills 50 million people? Well, so that's a really important question. I'm really glad you asked that. That's a question we think about a lot at NTI, and we're, in fact, quite concerned about it. So we were worried both about state actors and non-state actors and their potential ability to create a really sophisticated biological weapon that could cause devastating harm to large numbers of people and could result in a uh, you know, uh, biological event that's global in scope and catastrophic in impact. And that's why we're so focused on our work uh, around norms and governance for um, for rapidly advancing bioscience, especially um, in areas where there's dual use re- uh, research, um, and the reason you know we care about this so deeply is we're pre- specifically we're precisely trying to prevent that kind of outcome. You know, while while you know I personally believe that the best way to to sort of prevent undesirable outcomes with states is to shape their uh, intentions. I think there is a chance to shape the, you know, constrain the capabilities of non-state actors. They do not have the kinds of resources necessarily that states do, um, and and that's why you know norms and best practices for um, for bioscience research is is critical. And you know the real the way that that can work is sort of twofold. One is preventing something that we call uh, well. So so let me just back up a second. You know the reason that that work is important is we want to prevent the exploitation of a legitimate global bioscience research and development enterprise from being exploited by uh, malicious actors, such as, you know, types of terrorists you talked about. Um, and the way that you can do that is, is sort of twofold. One is you want to prevent information hazards. And what that term means is, you know, uh, well-intentioned scientists going about and, you know, doing cool research that they think is really going to, like, uh, improve uh, our capabilities in some fashion, um, but but maybe in a, hasn't thought that through and has published a paper that makes it easier for um, for other people, perhaps with less knowledge, to develop uh, to engineer or synthesize a pathogen. So we're trying to find effective means to um, prevent that from happening. And in fact, um, recently there was a group. Uh, you know, so nature, nature, the journal Nature recently published a paper 
um, where researchers showed how to synthesize from scratch the SARS-CoV-2 virus and also shared information um, more generally about how you can synthesize a broad range of viruses from DNA that you can buy or RNA you buy over the internet. And so, you know, we we are concerned about those kinds of publications and we see that as an information hazard. The, the second piece is not just about information, it's also about access to materials and services. So, you know, there are companies that provide DNA synthesis services. There are repositories that share pathogen samples with researchers. Um, there are increasingly uh, these places called cloud labs that will help you design and, and engineer microbes for science research. Um, and we really want to make sure that we're cooperating with those companies and those uh, providers to make sure that they're not inadvertently selling the building blocks of dangerous pathogens to malicious actors. And so that, and, and this is, is a totally unregulated space. No, it's not totally unregulated. Um, there's, uh, it's not as uh, well governed as we would ideally like. There is a bright spot in DNA synthesis. Um, so, um, Mo- like about 80% of global market share of, of DNA synthesis orders is screened. Um, many companies have voluntarily joined an international consortium that's doing that and it's um, voluntary. I mean, I think the thing, so there are two shortcomings. One is that it's not um, 100% of global market share. So there's a big 20% gap there. Um, and the other, the other thing that's worth noting is that it's not required in any country around the world. All these companies are doing it on a voluntary basis. Um, and we at NTI believe that perhaps that should change. And so all these questions that I'm raising, all of this, you know, these are really challenging questions about what is it, you know, about norms and best practices for biosecurity? How do you ensure that the global bioscience research and development enterprise can thrive and bring about all the tremendous benefits that it can offer, but also guard against the risks? And that's why we believe that um, it would be uh, beneficial to develop um, an international entity that's dedicated to this work to reduce emerging biological risks associated with rapid advances in technology. Um, you know, this could be done uh, possibly in, you know, in consultation with the United with a UN agency. Um, this could be done by a non-governmental organization. You know, we believe that an effort like this should involve experts from across multiple sectors, including the scientific community, the international security, public health, and philanthropic communities. So we think that's really important. Um, going back to original point about preventing terrorists from getting access to potentially dangerous technologies that could cause tremendous harm. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, your report obviously identifies a number of big gaps in, in global governance in this key area. And thank you so much for explaining it all. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for your interest in this important work. And, and thank you in advance for preventing a global catastrophe from befalling the world. If enough <laughs> people read your report. We're doing our best. We hope that uh, others will join us in this effort. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jamie Yusuf. That was great. Very helpful. And, uh, you know, exercises like these are intended to shake policymakers from their complacence. So you know, if you're a uh, policymaker listening to this, I urge you to read the report. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.